Liberal Fix is brought to you by Blue Push Media, news important to progressives and liberals across America. Good evening and welcome to this edition of Liberal Fix Radio. Um, it's Friday, I think it's September 18th, I don't even know what day it is. But anyways, it's Friday and I'm your host, uh, Keith Breckis, uh, broadcasting from Montana. Again, I'm joined by my co-host, Naomi, in Southern California. How are you doing this evening, Naomi? Hi, Keith. I'm doing very well, thank you, and I'm excited about our guest for tonight. Yeah, and uh, our guest is uh, James Kilgore. He's a writer, researcher, teacher, and social justice activist, um, and he's the author of a book, uh, Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. Um, so welcome, James. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing fine, Keith. Glad to be with you. Hi, Naomi. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. Well, welcome to the show. We're excited to have you, and so, social justice is right up our alley, so I'm really excited about the topic and getting your insight. Okay, I'm looking Absolutely. forward to the conversation. Yeah, and so I guess we could start with, um, um, and maybe, uh, I don't know how much of an introduction you wanted on your background, but feel free to add more about uh, anything you want to share on that, too. But the other thing I was going to get right into was uh, um, just kind of to highlight the book, I guess, on, on May 25th uh, of last year, the editors of the New York Times said, the American experiment in mass incarceration has been a moral, legal, social, and economic disaster. It cannot end soon enough. Um, how? What's your perspective? How, how would you summarize this uh, American experiment? Well, I think... I wouldn't exactly call it an experiment. I think we're beyond the experimental stage. I think it's uh, become part of the part of the landscape. Uh, the author Brian Stevenson, the writer of a great book called Just Mercy, has said that mass incarceration really defines who we are as a society, almost the way in which slavery does. That it's been so such an inter, become such an integral part of of the American social and political landscape, and. I think it's had tragic implications on many levels. I mean, I spent six and a half years in in federal and state prisons in California, and so I noticed this kind of endless sea of of people coming through the gates, disproportionately African-American and Latino, but there seemed to be a, a virtual endless supply of bodies for this enormous system, which, I mean, this was in the early 2000s. I didn't have a vocabulary like mass incarceration, but I could see something was really going on that was uh, of an of an incredible dimension. And so when I got out in 2009, I began to research this thing called mass incarceration, finding that you know the prison population of the United States had gone from less than half a million in 1980 to about 2.5 million in, in 2009, having gone down slightly since then. Uh, we our spending on incarceration had gone from somewhere around six or seven billion a year to about eighty billion dollars a year. And from my own experience inside I had also seen that the idea that prisons were a place of rehabilitation, a place where people might pick up a job skill, uh substance abuse training, uh treatment or anything that was going to help them transition back into the community and turn their lives around, that virtually those programs were all removed and people were being just warehoused in mass and so this is kind of what sparked me to sort of research and and work on this issue and write a book about what I've called the key civil rights struggle of our time. Well, that's an incredible beginning uh, to the conversation. I'm going to ask you, uh, since the 70s, 1970s, polls reflect a massive upsurge in popular support for the criminal justice system and approval of police conduct rose from a 37, miserable 37% in 77 to 78% in 2001. Can you explain that, what, what happened? I think several things, th- several things happened on that, Naomi. I think the first and perhaps most important is simply that there was kind of a political backlash against the social movements of the 1960s and 70s, mm-hmm. the anti-war movement, the civil rights movement, black liberation movement, gay liberation, women's liberation, all these movements created a certain instability amongst a more conservative sector of the population. And I think that 
particularly conservative politicians such as Ronald Reagan played on that instability and and began to create a, a fear of lawlessness and this kind of morphed into for example the the war on drugs where in the early 1980s people in in popular opinion polls people didn't Id- even identify drugs as a significant problem yet in 1982 Ronald Reagan launched a war on drugs put millions of dollars into policing a war on drugs and kind of manufactured a, a fear around this which then promoted a law and order agenda which escalated throughout the 1980s but also there was a media component to this. I mean, Ronald Reagan was a master of media. So this was a multimedia campaign, starting with his own wife, Nancy Reagan, who toured the country doing something like 250 appearances on this mm-hmm. with his slogan, Just Say No to Drugs. Mm-hmm. And then we had even Michael Jackson doing a, an episode of the Flintstones to uh, oppose d- drug use and so forth. So we had a whole lot of media effort to build up a fear of drugs and drug users, which then prompted the use of police in order and, and incarceration in order to to carry out this war on drugs. And kind of to follow up with that, how has that flipped, or has it? The recent has there been. Um, a flip because of recent outrage over police killings. Does that change the approval of police conduct from what it was? Um, the the, re, the recent polls have showed have shown some decrease in sort of the credibility of the police or the or the percentage of people that are, that think the police are doing a, a good job. And I think it's quite clear that a lot of the video footage, in particular, that people mm-hmm. have taken of police incidents like um, Samuel DuBose and Sandra Bland and so forth, mm-hmm. have really shaken the credibility of, of police as witnesses and their and the stories that they've been giving in in terms of their encounters with 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 people. And but I also think that the activity of people in in in, in Ferguson, the Black Lives Matter folks, and also the People that have been mobilizing around the issues of immigration have highlighted some of the some of the real problems with the way in which policing and criminal justice have been unfolding in the United States, and I think that's also changed people's thinking on this to some extent. But there's still a, a lot, a long way to go. The, the system of mass incarceration, you know, remains fully intact with a few minor changes. Um, Keith, I want to ask something real quick. I'm sorry. I want to, I'm going to jump in with another kind of follow-up. Um, do you think that it's that the the outrage over police conduct, as, as you called it, do you think that that's always been there, but now it's more prominent because of the age that we're in, because people readily have a cell phone they can take pictures of or videotape? Do you think it's always been there, but it now it's just kind of becoming more visible because of the social media that we have today? Well, I think a lot of the, you know, police violence and police abuse has been there for a long time. I think the I think the videos have have sparked a latent consciousness, but I think what's happened really is that that has brought to the fore, you know, the experience of a lot of poor African American and poor Latino communities, which has been largely invisible throughout the years, but this experience has been accumulating. If we look at the if we look at the numbers of people in prisons and jails, we find that almost seventy percent of the people in prisons and jails across the country are people of color, almost forty percent African American. So this has taken a long time to build up. And and I think the I think the videos and the incidents such as Michael Brown and so forth have just sparked a consciousness, but which is which has been which has been latent and kind of building over the course of the decades of mass incarceration. Yeah, and I, I think one of the things that the videos have done is is traditionally before before the cell phone age, um, it was sort of the police officer's word against the suspect. If the su- suspect, for example, survived a brutality case, and of course, in those cases, people pretty much always took the side of law. Well, the cop must be right, not this guy with a criminal record or this guy from the that neighborhood or whatever. But but you know, when you catch uh, like the Walter Scott shooting on tape. No matter what the police report said, people can see him shooting the guy in the back. So, you know, there will be still people who defend him and say, well, what didn't we see before on the video or what? You know, I mean, there will be people who rally to the cause of law enforcement. 
a lot of people will look and say, well, you know, it's a pretty clear picture right there of, of what looks like a guy who wasn't being threatened shooting somebody in cold blood. So, I mean, uh, you know, the, the videotape, I, I guess, you know, to some extent doesn't lie. So if they catch it on cell phone, it, it, I think it, it is sort of given new opening for, for people criticizing the police because it isn't just the police can't just always bury it in a report without without having some evidence that works against them. I um so I think that's you know, somewhat a positive thing, but I but but you know, there's a lot more that still needs to be done. One thing I, I did want to bring up too though, um, in terms of the mass incarceration, I know mandatory minimum laws have caused an unbelievable number of people to have to serve life sentences uh, frequently even for just very minor crimes. Um, and one of the stories I think you you brought up is the story of the quote-unquote pizza thief who was sentenced to 25 years to life. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and how common is that sort of thing? Well, in the in the 1990s, we began to see the passage of three strikes laws which meant i mean they were virtually every state ended up with a three strikes law and pretty much what it meant is that if you had three violent felonies uh you would end up the third one would get you a a, a an automatic life sentence without parole california's was one of the strictest and it actually if you had uh, a third felony regardless of whether or not it was violent or not that would automatically get you a life sentence so what happened in the case of Dwayne Williams, he had two felony convictions, and he, for some reason, you know, was on a beach one day, and he was kind of hungry, and there were some kids eating pizza, so he snatched a piece of pizza from them, was arrested, and somehow they converted what would look like a petty theft into a felony conviction, and he ended up being sentenced under the three strikes law in California, uh, which meant an automatic life sentence. He he did appeal it, and eventually he got out after serving five years on that. But there's about 4,000 people in California who are who are doing life sentences for three strikes violations. And there's also a two strikes uh, violation, which meant a, that any sentence for a second felony would, would automatically double the time that people were serving, and that ended up with about 35,000 people getting their time doubled because of two strikes. And this has created a huge increase in the prison population because these people are not going home. And this has been part of a reason why we've seen a big prison building boom. And in a state like California, we saw in the 1990s, largely as a result of these kinds of sentencing policies, nine major prison projects carried out, each one costing somewhere between 150 and $200 million. So this kind of prison binge, as uh, researcher Martin Horn called it, really was taking place across the country and began to build up a life of its own, both politically and, of course, obviously some people were making money off of this as well. Um, I'm going to ask you uh, to kind of fall back on um, a topic that you touched on earlier about the war on drugs. Um, there's critics of mass incarceration have focused on the war on drugs and excessive sentences for people that you mentioned they're convicted of nonviolent crimes. Um, but yet you also argue that, there, that there's also a war on immigrants going on. Can you expand on that and tell us about the mass incarceration with immigrants? Well, what's happened is that if, if we kind of look at this in terms of the historical period, in the 1980s and 1990s, the War on drugs was really the major offensive of of mass incarceration, and it really was largely tar targeted Af at African Americans. But towards the mm -hmm. end of the 1990s, we we began to see some backlash also against immigrants, which escalated considerably after 9/11. So the uh, the 9/11 incident created a lot of stirring up of fear of immigrants. Uh, push for harsher immigration laws, a push for, you know, tighter border controls, building walls along the 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 border with Mexico, and a whole uh increase in the numbers of border patrols, uh 
guarding you know guarding along the border between Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and so forth. And so we began to see a huge increase in the numbers of people who were being arrested for immigration charges, a huge increase in deportation numbers, and an expansion of immigration detention centers and special immigration prisons, which, which began to criminalize immigration, whereas before it was a civil case, that is, People that crossed the border illegally were simply taken to the border and sent back. But they, the, the law changed in, in the late 1990s so that it, one repeat offense of crossing the border illegally could get you up to two years in a federal prison. If you had a prior violent felony, you could get up to 20 years in prison. So we have now we have over 300,000 immigrants in our prisons, and from 2000 uh, to the present, we've seen the the the, po- the Latino population in the in the prison system increase by about 50 percent, whereas the actual number of African Americans has decreased slightly. And why, in addition, why are private prisons a special threat to undocumented immigrants, uh, specifically to um, tell us about the mandatory minimum? of detainees that Congress now requires ICE to capture every year. Okay, well, I think every, a lot of people, uh, Keith, love to hate the private prisons. You know, we don't like the idea of people making money out of locking people up and then making even more money to lock up more people uh, for longer sure. periods of time. And in actual fact, by the, around the turn of the century, the private prisons were a very tenuous project. They were having a lot of problems in their institutions. They were also having major financial scandals with some shareholder problems with dividends and so forth. And and, and in fact the you know the, the stock market pundits were kind of predicting their demise. But when two thousand uh when nine eleven happened the private prisons all of a sudden realized that this was going to be a new market for them, immigration detention. So they 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 uh, hired lobbyists to advocate for harsher immigration laws. They began to solicit contracts from the federal government to build immigration detention centers. And so this has really become their niche market. And of the people that are held in immigration detention, of the people that are held across the country in prisons and jails, only about 9% are in private prisons. But about 40% of those held in immigration detention centers are held in privately owned facilities. And this is largely because the federal government has actually made a mandatory number of people that have to be held in those immigration detention centers. It rose up to 34,000. I think they've rolled it back to 32,000. But this is is basically a guaranteed uh, contract for the private prisons that they're going to have this number of people in immigration detention centers. And it's, it's, it's really pretty outrageous that you're actually almost putting like a quota on immigration detention. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, it, tell, um, I, I want to expand on that a little bit more because that is something that is near and dear to, to my heart. Tell us about that. I mean, how do you, how do you kind of um, rework that or how do we kind of try to reshape that? Because like you said, it is, it is like a, a quota. You know, we joke about, oh, I got stopped for a ticket at the end of the month because the cop didn't, you know, probably didn't make his exactly. quota. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, five minutes, five miles over the speed limit, and, you know, he nailed me, and it's the end of the month, so he probably needs his, um, his last ticket of the month or whatever. But how do you, how do, you know, how do we have a dialogue about that where it's, you know, where it's something that positive can come out of that, where it's not so much, you know, the money-making deal and the, the profit and, you know, the quota? Well, I think, I mean, I think there's a serious problem of having prisons owned by private companies. I mean, they mm-hmm. have such a Absolutely. such an incredible <laughs> yeah. conflict of interest in terms of their right. basic mission. Um right. and so if if they actually have cornered a market and and one of the other quotas that they have is in a lot of the contracts that private prisons have, they have a guaranteed occupancy payment rate. So oh they're usually paid per bed. I mean, it's like a hotel, right? If you have oh it's like it's like a, if if they have nobody in their prisons, they're still getting paid as if they're 90% full. 
And so most of the private prison contracts have that mandatory occupancy in them, which is completely outrageous because you're basically taking money from the taxpayers and making them pay the private prison corporations to either hold people or to not hold people. In either case, the private prisons make, make their money. So it's, it's quite an outrageous kind of uh, uh, arrangement, and you know, quite frankly, it should just be eliminated. It, it should not be allowed. I mean, if private prisons are you know, competing in the free market, why should they get a guarantee uh, guaranteed occupancy. But I, I'm, in terms of the immigration quotas, I mean, quite clearly those things should just be eliminated. I mean, it would make much sure. more sense if they want to fix a number, let's fix a quota, let's fix a maximum number of people that we can detain rather than a, a, a target that we have to fulfill. Right. Right. And and again, like you went back to, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, Keith, I'm going way. Oh, <laughs> no, no, it's, I mean, we want to have a discussion, <laughs> but, so it's, let's. Let's but, go. These are um, all con- everything's connected here. It's a big, big, complicated process. So it, I want to get it through it. It is, and and how you know how do um how did this start with this private you know private prison? And I, I understand how it works, but I mean, how did this come to be? Was it the state reached out? The states reached out, or it was just an opportunity, a money opportunity, money making opportunity, or how did this kind of come to fruition? What is the background of? the prisons that are there for to make the money because they're not well, even doing like like you said now they're not they're not doing a trade or they're not trying to rehab people it's just get in fill the beds and if you're done in 5 years then you're out and someone else is in it's a re- that, that revolving door um well, I, mentality I think I mean I think the private prisons the private prisons really started in the in the early 1980s and Tom Beasley who was one of the founders of the Corrections Corporation of America the largest private prison operator he said that he believed that he could sell prisons just like you sell hamburgers or shoes so to him it was just oh another gosh. it was just another commodity but i think what oh happened i think what happened in the course of the 1980s and 1990s as mass incarceration you know built up a life of its own it also built up an economic logic of its own and it attracted profiteers who could see that if this project was to continue that it was going to be a growth area so while the private prisons are particularly odious um, they're certainly not alone and perhaps they we we reserve a little bit too much of our you know antipathy for the private prisons and a lot of the other companies and individuals that make money and power out of mass incarceration kind of get off uh, without much blame. So, for example, if we look at the way in which you know, prison building is financed, we'll find that, there's, that bonds are floated, and guess who floats these bonds? None other than companies like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, all the big financial players that we, that we sort of love to hate out of the 2008 financial crisis. Well, they've been behind underwriting these bonds and making huge amounts of money out of that. We have these globe, We have the same company that built the Lincoln Center in, in New York um, also built a whole lot of prisons across the country, Turner Construction Company. So there's a whole lot of players in this who are, who are big time in terms of making money and who, kind of, we, who we don't even notice. And, I mean, mm-hmm. just to give us an idea of the scale of private prisons, uh, I mean, because I consider them – I consider them to be kind of minor role players in a way. But if we look at all the revenue of the Corrections Corporation of America and the GEO Group for 2013, it comes to about $3.5 billion, which is a lot of money. But that's only half the corrections budget of the state of California alone. So it's... It, it, it's important that we keep an eye on the private prisons, but let's also look at the fact that there's a lot of other companies making money, and there's also a lot of state employees and corrections officials and so forth who also have a big political and economic stake in this system. Oh, gosh. I'm sorry, it's a mess. Go ahead. <laughs> Oh, no, yeah, no, it's, it's compelling. And, <laughs> you know, um, and one thing I mentioned, I guess um, – Another area is going into is uh, debtors' prisons were uh, allegedly outlawed in the 1800s, but recent studies by the American Civil Liberties Union and the Brennan Center say they are staging a comeback. 
how do death and incarceration cycle into what one caller calls a life one scholar excuse me calls a life sentence well i think i mean mass incarceration although it's big and complicated is actually a bit of a subset of kind of criminalization of poverty so when we think about mass incarceration the first thing we kind of tend to think about is crime and policing and so forth but actually Mass incarceration really reflects a big shift in how the U.S. as a society addresses issues of poverty and inequality, racial conflict, and so forth. How do we deal with the problem of homelessness? How do we deal with the problem of mental health? How do we deal with the problem of substance abuse? So what's happened is that we've gradually defunded the programs that deal with that provide public housing, that provide services to people who need mental health or substance abuse treatment. And the funding for that has been shifted into policing and, and uh, jails and prisons. And com we've combined that with a whole set of laws that have made it vir virtually a crime to kind of carry out survival activities of, for poor people in public places. So we find that a, a, sur a, a survey by the National Coalition for the Homeless found that 33% out of 235 uh, uh, cities prohibited camping in public, in public places. 30% prohibited sitting or lying down in, pu in certain public places. Um, mm -hmm. Some cities have banned feeding people in public places. Mm -hmm. um, yes. mm -hmm. uh, about half the cities in the country uh, prohibit begging or what they call aggressive panhandling. So all mm -hmm. of these things that people used to be able to do have now been made into criminal offenses. And then what happens when they get arrested? They get fines. They get court charges. In many jurisdictions, anyone who's even charged in a criminal case is going to end up with several hundred dollars worth of court charges, whether they're found guilty or innocent. They'll have a computer upgrade fee. They may be charged a booking fee. They may be charged a, a copay if they get um, health care services while, while they're in jail. So all of this becomes a debt that they carry with them even when they come back to the streets. And, and, the, and the crowning jewel in all of this is the fact that when people can't pay their fines, the punishment that's frequently meted out to them is suspension of their driver's license. So what happens then is, of course, they need their driver's license. They need their car to drive to work, to carry out family responsibilities. They get pulled over. They get arrested for uh, and charged with driving with a suspended license. And then more fines and fees come up, and this, then we just have this cycle of people going in and out. So we find... In, in some jails, we have like 15 to 20 percent of the jail population are just people with non-DUI traffic offenses um, over that kind of cumulative process. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. <laughs> and, and if you're if you're arrested for panhandling, how in the how in the heck are you supposed to pay uh, you know your fines and your and your court fees if that's what you were arrested for? Well, this is the you know this is the big contradiction, Naomi. I mean, all you're you're we know that the people who are in prison and jail are really you know the poorest layer of of society. So yes, to be piling yes. to be piling fines and fees and so forth on them is really just setting them up to come back through the door. But but you know that raises the question: Isn't this system set up to do that? Isn't it set up right. to keep people cycling in and out because? so many people have an interest in the perpetuation of mass incarceration. Well, and it deals with exactly what we talked about before. How are we treating homelessness? homelessness? Mm -hmm. How are we treating uh, mental illness in our country? Because most of those people, I'm not trying to be derogatory, but respectfully, those are the people that are panhandling or that are sleeping on the park benches or that are, you know, at Venice Beach laying under the palm trees just, you know, in, in a wrapped up in a blanket trying to, you know, catch a night's sleep. So, Right, I mean it's not like yeah. It's not like people are rushing out of the, you know, out of their suite in the high Hyatt Regency to go sleep on a park bench, right? I mean, it, you know, they're, so they're really not very vulnerable if they're having a sleepless right. night, you know, they you know, they call room service and, you know, and give and have a drink or something, but it's like right. uh 
but that you know the so it, yeah all of this is set up and, and and this has been replicated across the country in city after city this kind of zero tolerance approach to making poverty visible you know it's it's about right. it's really right. about excluding to, people from space from space you're right we want to sweep them off off the park bench get a, not 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 in my backyard go somewhere else if you don't mm-hmm. if we don't feed them or give them a dollar when you see them off the freeway they won't come back but if you feed them they'll come back so stop doing it um i i wanted to ask you something but keith do you want to take a break are we at half oh yeah I, you, with, uh yeah, I can mention for people that just joined us, uh, uh, we're about half past the hour. Our guest is James Kilgore, and we're talking about mass incarceration. He is the author of a book, Understanding Mass Incarceration, A People's Guide to the Key Civil Rights Struggle of Our Time. Um, and I guess, Naomi, you can tell people where to find us on social media and then get back to asking questions. And you can find us on Facebook where in the search engine just type in Liberal Fix. We're also on Twitter at Liberal Fix, and you can also find Keith. He's a full-time politic- writer for Politicus USA. He's at Keith Breckus, or find him on Facebook. Um, he writes every day, full-time writer. He's a, a sociologist and our um, political wonk, so he's extremely knowledgeable in all facets of uh, what's going on today. And um, we are on every Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. if you're out here on the Pacific with me. Um, I wanted to ask you, James, as, as we go back to the question, are you, you sound like you're very familiar with California. Are you out here in California with me? Uh, no, I'm not in California. I live in, okay. I live in the great cornfields of Illinois, in Urbana, Illinois. But I, uh, but okay. I, I mean, I've spent a lot of time in California, some of it behind bars, some of it not. So I'm, I'm pretty familiar well, with the criminal justice system in California and many other aspects okay. of political life there. I, yeah. I wanted to ask you, this is pretty recent, and it's kind of a hot, hot, a hot button topic for a lot of us out here. Are you familiar with AB 109, Assembly Bill yeah, 109? Uh-huh. Okay. Or, or, can you go into that with me? I wanted uh, to sure, talk, uh-huh. Okay. I just wanted to talk just very briefly, just basically the statement that Governor Brown gave, and, and just a quick statement from you, because I, I, I think that you're probably the best one for me to ask. I've been dying to ask these questions. But let me just go over what it is, basically. For those of you that aren't familiar, it's Assembly Bill 109. It was passed, and our Governor um, Edmund G. Brown, Jr. signed it. It makes fundamental changes to California's correctional system to stop the costly, ineffective, and unsafe revolving door of lower-level offenders and parolee violators through our state prisons. And this is the quote. For too long, the state's prison system has been a revolving door for lower-level offenders and parole violators who are released within months, often before they are even transferred out of a reception center, Brown said. Cycling these offenders through state prisons wastes money, aggravates crowded conditions, thwarts rehabilitation, and impedes local law enforcement supervision. So what this does now is uh, no inmates currently in state prison will be released early. All felons sent to state prison will continue to serve their entire sentence. All felons who are convicted of a serious or violent offense, including sex offenders and child molesters, will go to state prison. And felons who are not eligible for state prison can serve their sentence at the local level. Um, It's basically... um, it protects funding for realignment, and of course, it's proposed by the Republican legislators. But what do you think about it, James? What's your take on it? Yes, no, or you think it's a good thing, or? Well, I think I think it's Governor Brown's, you know, clever attempt to avoid actually cutting down significantly the prison population in the in the state of California. I mean, the state of California was under a court order to reduce their population in the prisons because yes. of overcrowding by, mm-hmm. by something like 34,000. So what yes. What he did, rather than find ways to release people, you know, rather than really dealing with, with decarceration and mm-hmm. a fundamental change to one of the most hor- horrific prison systems in the, in, in the U.S., he mm-hmm. attempted to shift the population from the prisons to the jails by simply suspending the one-year limit on county jail time. So previous okay. to 
previous to 109, if you had a crime that got you a sentence of more than a year, mm-hmm. you had to go to state prison. That was compulsory. But, okay. but the state legislature overturned that, that restriction. So now we have people doing time 10 years, 14 years in county jails. Now, having spent time in a county jail and time in a state prison, and anybody who's done time will tell you being in a county jail is the worst place to possibly be. State prisons are much better. There's much more program. You can have uh, you can have much more. You can have uh, visits much more frequently, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. County jails offer nothing except mostly being locked in your being locked in your cell. So it's. But what it did is it shifted the numbers from the state to the county in order to comply with the federal regulation for decreasing the population. Now, there's a lot of smokescreen about a lot of this because they have set up some community alternative programs and so forth. They have released a few people. The prison population has come down. But at the same time, there's now been $500 million made available to county sheriffs to expand their jails. So so we're now going to see a whole... Uh, growth in the jail population again, and I'm not sure that in the long run whether this is going to significantly reduce the incarcerated population in California. It will, and it has reduced the you know the state prison population and eased some of the overcrowding. But a lot of that has just been shifted down in down to the county level. So I think it's 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 more or less a shell game, um, mm-hmm. and this is what I'm concerned with a lot of what's a lot of the talk about changing mass incarceration at the moment, how much is it going to get at the root of the problem as opposed mm-hmm. to you know, moving bodies around and right. playing, playing with numbers and playing with people's lives? It's almost like six, one, half a dozen of the other. You're just robbing yeah. Peter to pay Paul kind of thing. You're not really solving the heart of the problem. Right, right because as think- we've said... Yeah, I mean the heart of the problem is about how we deal with how we deal with poverty, how we deal with inequality, how we deal with racial conflict, how we deal with you know with with immigration, and these these questions are are still on hold. You know, we're, we're right. still solving them in the same old ways. Wow. Yeah, and I, I think we see we see a little bit of a, a movement in the country for people to sort of end mass incarceration, and there's been a little bit of bipartisan. Um, work to do that, which I think is now going to die out in this presidential cycle because I see sort of a repeat of the criminalization of immigration and, the, you know, strike stirring up fear of urban black people. and st- I mean, I see a lot of stuff going on in the election cycle that reminds me of Willie Horton ads and, you know, the previous uh, things like that. But, but to James's point, I think a lot of what, what's being done at the political level is sort of public relations um, Ending mass incarceration, but not, not actually doing anything about it, but shifting it from, like, like in California, or in state prison populations to county jails. Well, you know, putting people in the LA County Jail for five years isn't isn't um, isn't a humane solution. And and I think a lot of it too is just, um, like he mentioned too, the criminalization of poverty. I mean, we ought to be <laughs> putting effort into eliminating poverty instead of just locking poor people up. <laughs> solve the problem but but um, right and see uh, probably, i mean i think what's critical here really i mean talk is one thing but what, what but what speaks is where the money goes right so so how how much money is going into the kinds of programs that address poverty how much additional money is being spent on public housing for example you know how much money is be, how many more mental health facilities are we are are we opening so that the people who are locked up with uh you know with mental health issues you know can be put into can have some kind of treatment on on the street, but what ha- what we have seen money going into, we've seen millions go into a into a healthcare facility in the state prison system, and we've also seen recently the LA Board of Supervisors approve something on the order of 2.3 billion for jail building instead of engaging in in the creating of alternative programs, which a lot of people you know in the county who have been active on these issues have been pushing for. And one thing too, um, another thing you mentioned in your book that I think we haven't uh, talked about directly yet too is the the school to prison pipeline. Um, what has facilitated the development of that, and in what ways now do many schools actually even resemble prisons to some extent? Well, the school to prison pipeline, you know, is 
was part of the whole campaign of fear. It came a little bit after the beginning of the war on drugs, but in the 1990s we had a couple of, well, in the late, late 1980s we had a couple of high-profile incidents of crime allegedly perpetrated by by youth and youth of color. The, probably the most famous incident being a called the Central Park jogger incident where a young yeah. woman was you know was sexually attacked by some young men of color supposedly who ended up being incarcerated wrongly for the for the, for the crime but anyway these were used to create you know a climate of moral panic about the rise of a of a cohort of youth super predators and pr- predominantly you know black youth of course and so this precipitated a whole shift in the way in which Juveniles were treated in the criminal justice system, which also uh, uh, seeped into the education system as well. So we had this, this once again, this philosophy of zero tolerance, which was, uh, you know, the the idea that you have to nip things in the bud by punishing very small offenses very very harshly. So at the school level, we began to see. Uh, the zero tolerance discipline, complemented by the introduction of, of you know school resource officers, basically cops on campus. So all of a sudden, youth were being accosted by police for things that were you know had traditionally been handled by school discipline. A visit to the principal's office if you have a fight in the schoolyard. A visit to the principal's office if you have a disagreement with a teacher. Now all of a sudden we see police taking students out of schools in handcuffs. We see the introduction of things like lockdowns in schools. Who, I mean, I don't know, when, when I was growing up, no one ever heard of a lockdown in a school. We have, in some schools, we have metal detectors. We have, we have sniffer dogs going into lockers, you know, looking for drugs. A whole kind of the culture of the prison being infiltrated into schools and disproportionately into schools in poor urban areas, which are largely African-American and Latino. So that whole thing set up this idea that really students in these schools are not being prepared for academic success, not being prepared for college. They're being prepared to be under state control. Well, it sounds like that, um, like you said, exactly that, your last statement, it's also set, falls in tandem with your, we're not saying our students are for success for, or to, how to how to um, learn life lessons or how to be able to um, go out and be productive and positive factors in society, and it also seems like we're not doing our sh- our fair share um, as you know parents or caretakers or whoever's raising our, our the children because we're we're putting so much on the school, and so now the school's saying, okay, well, we're not doing this anymore. We're going to bring in you know, like you said, the the police um, on campus. What what is that saying to our students? What and especially those that you said are in are in lower income areas or social economic struggled areas. What what does that say to the kids when they, you know, when their you know first slap on the hand, like you said, isn't a trip to the principal? It's a trip in the back of a cop car. What does that say to our our youth? Well, I think it's. I mean, I think it's really. T- you know, sending the message that their you know, that their lives don't matter, that their feelings don't matter, and that the that the that you know that the school is not at all taking into consideration you know what's happening in the communities that people come from that might affect their you know their academic life, and so mm-hmm. how does a school become engaged with the with the community? Um, Right. And, and you know, it's, it's, there's just a disjuncture. So the so the school becomes just a center of you know of, of discipline. And you know, there's there's the idea that you have to somehow make make the school a a, a violence free place, a sec, you know, a secure environment, rather than somehow making it an institution that contributes to change in the in 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 the, in the community. Right. It. I I completely agree, and it it seems like there's a lot. It's easy now our society to just push things to the peripheral rather than okay, let's deal with this. It's it's not pretty. It's pretty ugly and it's pretty tough. But we're gonna we're gonna meet the challenge. Instead of that, it's okay. What's the quick fix? Where can we mm-hmm. send? What do we do with these people that are sleeping on parks? What do we do with this kid that's 
you know, got outbursts instead of saying, wow, you know, dad just uh, you know, went to prison himself or mom's working two jobs to make ends meet, you know, grandma had to move in. Whatever the disruption and whatever that, however that child, you know, handles it or doesn't, or doesn't know how to handle it, and however they react, um, you know, we're quick to slap them in, into a category and say they're unruly, they're discipline problems, they're not going to amount to anything, you know, the best place for them to shape up is in prison. Um, yeah, that's yeah, pretty disturbing, too, because, like, you know, I went to high school in the 1980s in a relatively privileged white community, and, and there were a fair number of fights in the high school, including a couple that I was involved in, but none of us came out of that with a felony record or, you know, I mean, and most of us didn't get seriously injured, but I mean, people did have bloody noses and occasionally, you know, I mean, fights got out of hand, but they mostly dealt with it in school and people sometimes got suspended and stuff, but they didn't get a felony record. And, and so, you know, when you criminalize sort of lower level delinquency or whatever you want to call it, just um, kids being kids, and you criminalize that, you, then you, you sort of destroy their life chances in these urban Latino and black neighborhoods and on probably on the Native American reservations as well, places where they cr- criminalize um, um, what's fairly normal behavior that, that could be disciplined in far less, I think, um, harsher terms. I mean, where the school can just handle it and separate people and, and you know, find a better way to deal with it. But, of course, um, that's not what we're doing with certain segments of the population. No, exactly, and I think he's a... We've seen, I mean, one of the complements of this is the kind of spatial segregation of cities. So, you know, we've seen, uh, mm. you know, the kind of re- recreation of segregate, racially segregated communities. So we have high schools that are almost entirely black or entirely uh, mm. students of color. And those institutions, you know, become what happens there becomes invisible to the rest of the, to the, you know, to the rest of the city. So the, the, the struggle as we've noted here, is to keep that out of sight, out of mind, rather than to address whatever problems you know, are, are, are taking place there. And this is made a whole lot worse by the fact that we've become much more punitive in terms of juvenile justice. So most states have now adopted policies where juveniles can be tried as adults. In Kansas, you can be tried as, as an adult if you're 10. And so, oh. and, and so people... I mean, one of the, one of my best friends in in High Desert State Prison in California was a man named Miguel Quesada who was doing a double life sentence for something that he did when he was 16. Well, yes, he committed a serious crime, but the, you know, all the research is, is is coming out on this now to show that you know people at 16 are not fully are not fully developed psychologically, and you know they can completely turn their lives around and putting people away for life on the basis of something they do when they're a teenager, plus throwing them into a an adult prison, which is mm-hmm. a very, you know, threatening environment, is is, mm-hmm. is really setting them up to really be incredibly trauma, traumatized and make mm-hmm. the rest of their life extremely, you know, difficult, even if they are to get out on the streets again. And and so we we probably find some some people that we would say, you know, they maybe don't deserve to be in there for, like you said, there's a 16-year-old, that someone that is now in their, I don't know, 30s. What, how, how do you justify, or is it just a matter of the the price of the, the prison term fits the crime? Or do you think there should be a different determining factor is how long they're in? Do you think that there should be an age? Well, once they reach this age, well, you know, they can be up for evaluation or you know, cause some, does it depend on the crime? What, what are your thoughts on how we can well, change? I, I mean, I don't. I mean, two things. One is that the the sentencing regime is now are incredibly uh, harsh compared to what used to exist in the United States, uh, say thirty years ago, before mass incarceration, where where really a life sentence typically meant eleven years or thirteen years, something like that. Now, life in most places means means life without parole. Um, and compared to say like European countries, it's you know it's similar to the way it used to be in the states. So we have that whole question. If we're to be, if we're really serious about dealing with mass incarceration, we essentially have to roll back all the 
all the mandatory minimums, all the truth in sentencing, all the three strikes laws that have been put in place, and go back to dealing with with, with situations and cases that on on somewhat of an individual basis. But secondly, we we can't really fundamentally address mass incarceration without recognizing that the that it's a system problem, and that we have to deal with. In terms of solutions, we need a systemic solution, and that means uh, that means massive, you know, shortening of sentences and releasing of people who are who are currently incarcerated. We cannot we cannot reduce the prison population by simply tweaking a few drug laws or simply, uh, you know, reducing the sentences for people with nonviolent offenses. We have to recognize that. We have created a monstrous system that requires massive and drastic action to change. If we keep going, I mean, one of the most important commentators on mass incarceration, Mark Maurer, noted that if we kept decreasing the prison population at the rate we've been doing since 2009, it would take 88 years for us to get back to the incarceration levels of the early 1980s. That's really not a fast enough pace. So right. we, we, we have to – this requires drastic action, and that's going to take a lot more than what politicians are talking about at the moment. Right. Um, well, briefly, if, if in the time that we have, how do you respond to people that say mass, incarcer- mass incarceration is, you know, g- gathered small-scale criminals from poor communities, um, but the people that have, need to serve the time – the, the real criminals are the people that steal millions from, you know, the, the big CEOs. They're they're untouchable, seemingly. What is your response to that? Does that? Well, I I like to think I like to think that what's happened under mass incarceration has been two processes. One is a process of criminalization, expanding the charges and sentencing and everything for for largely poor people and overwhelmingly poor people of color. But there's also been a process of decriminalization, which we haven't necessarily looked at, and that is that a lot of the behavior by corporations that was previously criminalized has been decriminalized. So, for example, if we look at the Mm -hmm. repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act, which was at the root of the 2008 financial crisis, that, you know, basically made it illegal for, you know, for banks to be engaged in financial speculation. But the repeal of that act was essentially a decriminalization of of the, you know, of the misinvestment and the misuse of, of people's pension funds and savings funds and so forth. So that's been a process of decriminalization. We can say the same thing about environmental controls, for example, the regulation mm-hmm. of, of pollution or the regulation of, of occupational health and safety. All of these things have been decriminalized so that corporations are able to get away with things that previously would have, would have, would have landed them into some, in some kind of legal action. So that's a, an aspect of mass incarceration that's been kind of neglected is the fact that some people have gotten, are, are much freer to commit crimes because mm-hmm. what, what was previously criminal activity is no longer you know, criminal activity. Hence, no one has gone to prison for the 2008 financial crisis. Crisis, but a lot of people who may have uh, stole a loaf of bread or sold a couple rocks of crack cocaine are doing big time for that um, since 2008. Right, that dared sleep on a park bench or, or dared to try right. to feed them, or that dared right. to try to feed them. Um, I'm sorry, Keith. I'll let you. I'll stop. <laughs> I'll oh no, get in no, there. and I think that's an important uh, distinction because I, I think. Um, you know, what we have is in the, increasingly in this system in this country is we seem to have uh, a lot of politicians, particularly from one party, but really from both parties, um, um, making sort of criminalizing what poor people do, but making it easier for rich people to get away with. <laughs> I mean, for CEOs right. and corporate right. people to mm-hmm. get away. I mean, deregulation is a big thing. Oh, we got to get government off our backs. Well, the people who are saying that aren't saying we got to get government off the backs of the people in Ferguson and Baltimore. I mean, they want That's right. heavy-handed police response there because, by gosh, those are scary black people or they're scary people crossing the border. But but then when it's like, oh, well, you can't dump those pollutants in the river. Oh, no, the EPA is being heavy-handed. A company has a right to make money even if they're 
poisoning the drinking water, you know, downstream, big deal. I mean, let the people file lawsuits, but we shouldn't have laws against it. Um, and it's, um, I don't know, you know, <laughs> I hope there's cause for optimism. Do you see, um, do you see sort of anything positive or things that can be done that maybe there's a will to do or, or do you see it as well, sort of, um, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, I think, I think there's a I think there's a lot of potential for change right now because I mean mass incarceration you know ha, it has in the last year it has come much more into the public eye than it has been for years and the, mm-hmm. I mean we can't change a system unless there's at least some awareness of the of the nature of the problem sure. and I think if you look so if you look at the political level we hear Hillary Clinton and and uh, and uh, the and Barack Obama and Newt Gingrich and Cory Booker Booker and Rand Paul, all these people talking about mass incarceration and making some kind of changes. If you listen to Rand Paul and the Republican debate, he actually didn't sound so bad on a lot of this stuff. And so there is that dialogue and discussion, which is important and I think will lead to some – you know, reform of the laws and so forth. But I think much more important is the fact that we have people in motion really across the country that are dealing with this at a whole lot of levels. We have people that are, you know, that are fighting against drug legislation and are pushing for prison closures. In New York, they've closed 11 prisons and drastically reduced the prison population. We have people in communities. I live in a small county of Champaign, County, Illinois, we've been fighting for three and a half years to stop the county from building a jail and get them to fund alternatives. The people in Los mm. Angeles have been fighting for years to stop yeah. that, mm-hmm. to stop the, bu- the, the building of that jail. If we go across the, com- the country, we find people fighting against solitary confinement. We find people pushing back against excessive use of the death penalty, life mm-hmm. without parole for, for, for youth. We find a lot of people uh, campaigning for the for the the around the conditions of of predominantly women who have been left behind by mass incarceration to deal with family problems to deal with financial and community issues in communities that have been decimated by mass incarceration there's a lot of movement there's a lot of organization there's a lot of you know interest around this. I think Black Lives Matter, I think also mobilization around immigration has sparked particularly youth into looking at not only policing and not only uh, in, not only immigration, but bigger picture things about how we deal with poverty, how we deal with inequality, and how resources are allocated. So I think there's a potential now if to, to bring together some kind of a social movement that can put pressure and, 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 and force political change. There is definitely a, a new kind of consciousness and energy around this. We, know, we of course, can't predict exactly how, th- how that will move forward, but it's certainly much different than it was even two or three years ago. Uh-huh. I would agree well, with that, and I, I think that's good. I mean, at least that's progress. Go ahead, Naomi. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, well, quickly, thank you so much for for this for this time. It it really was an honor to speak with you, and we have to have you back. Please, I hope you're okay. Well, able well to thank join you us. very much. I really enjoyed it. I mean, it's it's also it's really great to have kind of a a three way dialogue and bounce things off of each other. So I I really I really enjoyed that kind of repartee, and I I'd surely love to talk to you again as we as we move down the road on the in this struggle and see how things go. Well, continue yeah. everything that you do, and best wishes, and thank you for, for all your work. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'm sure our listeners did, too. I thought it was a really um, compelling um, discussion, and so I, you know, I'll, I'll post it on our page, and hopefully lots of people listen in, and, and we can keep the ball moving forward, so to speak, on ending this problem and having a more humane and sensible criminal justice system, and so thank you once again uh, for joining us and, and hope you have a great rest of the weekend. And like Naomi said, we'd love to have you back on again sometime. Okay, great. I'll look forward to that. Thanks very much. Okay, thank you. And and on behalf of our guest, James Kilgore, and uh, myself and uh, my co-host, Naomi, we want to wish all our listeners a great weekend as well. Be kind to your neighbor, and uh, and we'll catch you next week at the same time. <laughs>